Wonderfully Weird Podcast. Here's your host, KC Hunter. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Wonderfully Weird Podcast. This week, we are talking about writing, publishing, entrepreneurship, and everything else. We have Jack Gilden here. Jack, uh, tell the people hi. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, Jack is, uh, you may have seen his book, Collision of Wills. You might want to uh, check it out if you're a sports fan and, you, and if you haven't heard of it. Um, it's a very in-depth book, uh, a look at the life of, well, it's a look at the NFL. And it's a look at some of the things in the public, some of the things not so public, uh, involving the National Football League and its popularity. Uh, Jack, why don't you give a, a good synopsis of your book and what it's all about? Okay. Well, Collision of Wills is, uh, centers around the careers of two important men in the 1960s, Johnny Unitas and Don Shula. And uh, Unitas is clearly, you know, uh, in the conversation as the greatest player who ever played professional football, and Shula was his coach. Uh, Shula later went on to become famous as the head coach of the Dolphins, and he had the perfect season there in 1972. But Unitas and Shula spent seven years together, and they took the game to new heights. They had a better winning percentage than Vince Lombardi's Packers, but they couldn't win the championship together. And behind the scenes, uh, they didn't like each other very much. Mm -hmm. So I kind of chronicle that, and I also use it as a lens on the on America at mid-century and kind of looking at the, the, the nation in, in collision as well as these two men in collision. Right. So, it's, it's, again, it's not just about the football aspect of it. It's also part of the social aspect of what it was like at the time. Uh, some of the different uh, relations between classes, between in business and in the you know, what, what is probably one of the biggest things that you think people would be shocked uh, hearing as far as the social aspect of what it was like then? Because a lot of young people probably uh, have an interest in football and might pick up the book. Some older people who remember those times may have forgotten some of that stuff. What would stand out the most? Well, I mean, the sexual mores were very different then, even though the country seemed to be on the surface more repressed in a lot of ways. That repression led to, uh, you know, maybe uh, more free behavior behind mm -hmm. the scenes than we might see today or we might tolerate today. Right. And, um, you know, uh, in addition to that, I also look at the at the racial situation, which would really shock younger listeners today because it was just, it was so blatantly racist at that time. I mean, just blatantly. And you, you think of it, I think that people later on tend to think that it was all marginalized. It was in one, one section of the country, that being the South. But in the book, as I you know show, there was really very blatant racism all over the United States at that time. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. Um... I, I do think a lot of younger people now, like the, the especially we live in a metropolitan area. We live in uh, very blue Baltimore, um, which you know has its own issues now. But uh, Baltimore back then, <laughs> totally different, totally different town, totally different demographics. I mean, we're here in uh, we're, we're recording this here in Owings Mills, Maryland. I mean, even Owings Mills, if you go back, uh, I think the census in 1990, this area was like 53% white and 25% black. The census from this last census is completely flipped around. So, um, which is you know, socioeconomics and everything else. Do you think that um, do you think that other people would uh, be able to learn something from this, the social things? What, what, what do you think they should take away from that? Oh, as far as how, how definitely, I mean, there's a lot to learn from the social aspects of the book. Um, 
I mean, you know, that was a time of great turmoil in the country. And I would say, you know, what my research showed me was that it was even worse than what we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. The Vietnam War was extraordinarily polarizing. The racial issues were extraordinarily polarizing. The uh, rift between the parents and their children was gigantic. The World War II generation versus the baby boomer generation. So, I I mean, there's a a lot to learn from the social aspects of that book in, in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the more sophisticated readers of that book really loved that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Some readers who were just expecting to read strictly football liked it a little bit less. Oh, just so we're looking for stats and, you know, yeah. win-loss win percentages and things like that. Well, let's talk, talk about that a little bit. So, uh, uh, you know, from that time, you know, Johnny Unitas, I'll say arguably, because there will be people besides us listening to this, arguably is the greatest quarterback of all time he is. Um, but for, for people who are, might not be familiar with Johnny U and might not be familiar with, uh, you know, back at that time, Vincent Lombardi, most some people might not even know why it's called the Lombardi Trophy. Uh, but what, what, what should they know about uh, as far as the sports aspect of it, as far as the players and some of the interaction with some of the owners at the time? Well, I, I think that the 1960s was the high point of professional football. Uh, I talk about a game in 1965 when the Colts played the Packers in a special special playoff. The Colts were behind the Packers. It didn't look like there was any chance they could catch them. They were in the same division. There were only two two divisions back then. And um, and so the Colts did catch them improbably, even though Unitas went down uh, with a few games left to go. And his backup, Gary Quazzo, also went down right. with a few games to go. So Tom Maddy, a running back on the Colts, played quarterback. They went to Green Bay in December, played Vince Lombardi's Packers with a running back playing quarterback, and by all rights really beat them that day. They didn't, but they should have. uh, Only a bad official's call prevented them from beating the Packers and going to the championship game. So, you know, to me, that whole race, that whole year, and then the the postseason, it was so exciting. It was by far the high point of professional football. Ever since that day, I I think it's been a slow uh, descent. But other things adding to the greatness of that era was the fact that the AFL had come up, which was a rival league to the NFL, and um, it created uh, just a maniacal sense of competition. The two leagues were maniacally competing with each other in a business sense, but like say in, in the NFL where the Colts were, uh, Vince Lombardi and the Colts carried on a, a rival a rivalry that you've never seen again since. Mm-hmm. It might make the Pittsburgh and Ravens rivalry seem like nothing, or right. Dallas and Washington, or you know any of those others seem like nothing. I mean, when you look at all the Hall of Famers and the great coaches and the great quarterbacks, it was just extraordinarily intense. Either team, if they lost one game on the season, felt like they were falling out of the the race for good. Right. If you lost one, you right. felt like you were out of it. You know that's how intense it was at that time. So football's been in a you know a slow downward slope ever since that day in 1965. Yeah, and uh, which is funny because uh, <laughs> you mentioned AFO because two rivals or such or well one of them's already kaput. Uh, we're trying to come up against the uh, NFL this year. Um, of course, uh, I, mean, I guess we should, don't even need to talk about the one that already collapsed, but uh, Vince McMahon is trying again with the XFL next year in 2020. I have um, I have very strong feelings about that because, yeah. Um, what are so, your feelings about it? Uh, McMahon can't even get his own wheelhouse in order right now, and he's trying to do the XFL again. Um, a lot of people said the XFL 
you know, business-wise, it wasn't a good model to work. Uh, but some of the innovations that the XFL did have been carried over into the NFL, of course, with some of the camera shots and all that kind of stuff. Um, he's trying to do it more professional, more family-oriented now. Do you think that the NFL would benefit from competition? Because it's kind of like, it's a different kind of a competition. I don't think you can really go up against the NFL, but you can be an alternative in an alternative season. I don't know if that's going to actually do any business because you might get football fatigue. You, know, you what, might. I mean, and it seems like we're getting it anyway. Right. I mean, the the uh, we see things that we never dreamt were possible five years ago, like empty seats at the stadiums right. and plunging ratings. And I mean, I, I would say a lot of that has to do with some of the social issues that you know were brought up in my book back in the '60s. But there seemed to be a racial divide that was played by. Um, by uh, Colin Kaepernick, you know, and it created some hard feelings among the fans. Used to be, maybe if black people and white people weren't getting along well, you know, six days of the week on Sunday, they'd go to the football stadium and everybody was a Colt, you know, or everybody was a Jet or whatever they were. But then recently you had these problems pop up. So yeah, I mean, football, the NFL might benefit some from some competition, but I think what they really need is co-opetition more than competition. You know, like somebody, like the USFL's original model back in the 1980s of having springtime football, mm-hmm. that was a pretty good model. I mean, there were really good players in the in the USFL, and I think, you know, I think people do like professional football, and they would watch it in the spring. Yeah, but uh, well, it's funny you talk about the Kaepernick thing, because it's, uh, I think maybe the difference between that time back in the 60s and what's going on now is it's not even so much a, a racial thing. Because I think it's more of a, a, a ideological thing. Because that was kind of kind of cut along ideological lines too. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of black people who did not like. You know, there are a lot of uh, people of other minorities and ethnicities that didn't like what he did. And there's some other people who did. There's some people who were in the military who took offense to it. And there's other people in the military who's like, you know, it's all That's right. That's what we fought for. That's what we fought for. Right. So for your freedom to uh, speak, and whether I agree with it or not. So right. Um, I do think that part of, uh, which is interesting about when you do a historical book like that, and you can look at how the social changes were, the social issues were then, and then comparing them to now. Do you think it's relatively the same? I think, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. You bring up so many interesting points, if, if I could address them. Mm-hmm. And I know it's kind of a complex topic, so I'll try and keep it simple. But I think, um, you know, what you were saying about it being a little bit more... Um, uh, ideological than racial this time. I think I think you're right. I don't think, uh, not that I can speak for every white person in the world, <laughs> uh, although I try. I think that um, you know that white people think that it is down on ra- you know breaks down on racial lines. But I, I uh, taught community college. Uh, I'm Caucasian, but almost all of my students were African-Americans, and it was interesting. You know, I got a different perspective on it, I think, than most white people do who Mm -hmm. live in white neighborhoods, work white jobs or whatever. And, uh, you know, what I found was that many of my students totally disagreed with Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. My own feeling is, is that African-American athletes in the 1960s played a pivotal role in changing the country for the better. That they were intellectual leaders of nonviolent change and, and, uh, you know, they did, they made great strides in this country unlike has ever been made in any other country. And these, it was these athletes who, who were doing it. But they were also, uh, more intellectually primed to do it. So whereas Colin Kaepernick, at least in my own opinion, 
he did not really give a good voice to whatever it was that his cause was. But back in the 60s, you had those young Olympians, uh, Carlos, and what was the other one? Do you remember, Casey, in the 1968 Olympics? Oh, the... the uh, With the fist in the air, the black power fist. the other guy? I forgot the other guy's name, so... That's bad. I, I, that is bad, but, but um, in any event... Those you guys two, can yell at us in the uh, comment section. <laughs> well, th- those those guys uh, went to the Olympics, and they you know they were first and second in, in, uh, in some sprints, and they went to the medal stand, and they put their head down, and they threw the black power fist in the air. They put a black glove on and put their fists in the air. And this is all just you know like a month or two after the cities were on fire after the assassination of Martin Luther King, right. you know. But they planned their protest with Dr. Harry Edwards, who was then himself in his twenties and barely right. out of out of college and it was very well thought out and it had a real message to it their their message even though a lot of white people did object to it then was a positive one it was about empowerment it wasn't taking a swipe you know per se at the Mm -hmm. country you know i noticed too and and reading martin luther king and teaching it and viewing him that his messages were were never really explicitly Mm anti-american his messages were hey we just want to participate in the american dream also we deserve a place at the table too and i think that kaepernick left himself open to a lot of criticism by the way he chose to protest. I don't think he really thought about it. He didn't bring the same intellectual fervor to the table right. that the athletes of the 60s did. You also had, because um, of course you can't uh, forget about Muhammad Ali, and you also had, but see, the thing with Ali, what was it, the, um, was it the Frazier fight? Was that the big one? What? See, um, what are you referring to that happened? So uh, Ali was kind of, you know, he was very staunchly against the uh, Vietnam War. He was more flamboyant. There was the big fight. I keep wanting to say Frazier. I'm probably getting that wrong. But it was a big fight that he represented one side, at, you know, the more radicalized side. And then... Yeah, it was with Frazier. And Frazier represented more of the, you know, blue-collar worker. So that kind of went between lines. Like, when they talk about when they talk about that fight, it's like you see the little footage of all the celebrities going to it and... You know, these people were for Ali, and these people were for Frazier. And then when Ali lost, it was kind of like... So you're talking about the first, the first Ali Frazier, yeah, the first out of three. Frazier fight. Well, I talk a lot about Muhammad Ali in my book, even though he's not a football player. Yeah. But he's so representative of that era. Right. And he's such an interesting man, and, he, and such an intelligent and articulate man. But I don't give him a free pass because right. I think, you know, I mean, first of all, they all, you know, white liberals glommed onto him, but he was not a, a liberal. He was, he was a segregationist himself. Mm-hmm. As, as a black Muslim, he believed in the separation of the races and uh, even his principled stand on Vietnam. He said he was doing it for religious reasons, but he was hardly an orthodox in other ways. Yes. He, I mean, he fooled around on his wives mm-hmm. and, you know, and did things like that. So... You know, you could see maybe some selfish elements in in, uh, in what he was doing, but you know, there's no getting around the fact that he was smart and he was articulate. And when you know, he, I'm mean, not to use a bad word, but he said, "No Viet Cong ever called yeah. me the N word." Right. Right. And and you know, it's it seems like such a simple little sentence to say, but he really summed up a, a huge hypocrisy that was going on in the country then, which was. Why would uh, you know an able-bodied black man who who is a uh, a true patriot and does love his country? Why is he going to go and you know take a chance of getting his ass shot off right. halfway around the world when he can't even walk into a diner you know in, in the United own. States? Right. Right. So, 
I mean, he, he really had a way of crystallizing it, and that changed the, the view of white Americans about their country. We saw ourselves as John Wayne, you mm -hmm. know, we're John Wayne, but in Muhammad Ali's mouth and what he said, he had to make us consider the fact that maybe we were the bushwhackers shooting at John Wayne right. and not John Wayne. You go into somebody else's territory and you're kind of screwing up their home and messing with their stuff, and there's, there's a, uh, there was a move against the then, there's a move against the now. Um, well, and also, too, why go across the world to fight for fairness when we were living in an implicitly unfair society back at home? So he, in his brilliant way, you know, and in his plain spoken way, he summed it up very well. Yeah, and it was one of, there was many bricks laid on that foundation, and that was one of many ones that came across over time. Right. I think um, partly probably what we're seeing now is that there's, I think the, for the most part, the civil rights uh, movement was won by the civil the people who were for the civil rights, who were for the equality and treatment of, of minorities, for the equality and treatment of women. Homosexuals needed some time to catch up with that. But I think now it's uh, it seems to be that the problem might be that there isn't a giant, huge, overt, and it, you know something like that. Where as you're as you're saying, like at that time, it's quite quite obvious. You can just go into a restaurant. This one's for coloreds and this one's for whites and da 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 da. Right. It's right in your face all the time. And now there's a lot of either it's under the radar or it's perceived to be under the radar when it's not under the radar. Um, and then, you, like you say, you get things like with Kaepernick, who can't articulate his points really well. You don't have somebody else uh, providing a counterpoint to it. It's a lot of yelling and screaming. Do you think that's affecting sports in general? That's part, because you said there's part of that with the stadiums now having empty seats in it. Do you think that's across the board with sports? Yeah, I think I think it really hurt the NFL. I mean, I'm not sure what's hurting baseball because baseball is clearly suffering even more than the NFL is, and they don't have that same issue. But well, I, that's not true, really. They do to, have to that issue extent. because they barely have any black players left in Major League Baseball, and and the black fans have abandoned it, I guess, for other sports that they like better. So they do have it, too. But in football, I mean, the football really, for whatever reason, has a way of bringing the country together. It's like every Baltimorean, all the problems here, they're all united under that team banner. They mm -hmm. were with the Colts, and they are with the Ravens. You know, and then that Kaepernick thing, it fundamentally changed that equation, at least for a little while. It does seem to be healing a little bit, but, but uh, you know, it, it wasn't the escape anymore. It wasn't that one day a week when we were all, you know, countrymen, you know, yeah. as Baltimoreans. Well, yeah, even in your own city, because that's, what, that's the, one of the big things about the NFL is that you're representing different parts of the country and right. their own flavor, their own, your own heroes, whether you like your quarterback or not. Whether you ship them off to the 49ers or not, it doesn't or matter. The Denver Broncos. Or the Denver Broncos, or wherever they go, <laughs> right. um, you, you have you have issues. You, you you have those issues, but it's still your team. And I think part of the problem with what Kaepernick did is that it kind of undermined undermined the, the team aspect to it. It wasn't everybody's in the same team anymore. Now we've got now within the team, there are divisions within the fan base of the team. I was in the stadium a couple of uh, a couple of uh, years ago when the whole Kaepernick thing was at its you know fervor pitch, and um, I mean I remember you, you know the Star Spangled Banner came on. There was a couple of family of black families sitting next to each other, refusing to stand. And then the, uh, there were the white people around them who were standing during the the uh, uh, national anthem. And you know, I mean, there was some ugly barbs going back and forth mm -hmm. between the two groups of people. And it's 
just you know didn't really have a place in it to me right. it's like if you're you know if they were from pittsburgh and the other ones were from baltimore and they were screaming that seems normal <laughs> yeah that's more normal than uh <laughs> right the two groups of ravens yeah. fans at each other's that is, yeah because now, now that's that's you know a fun banter so right. most of the time most let, of the time unless you're a philly fan um or you're bringing or, alcohol to the table or you're or you're the yankees coming to baltimore um <laughs> right uh, and speaking, of, well, let's talk about that too about uh, Baltimore and, and, and the fan base in sports because uh, you do have a new book that's that you're working on now. Um, Baltimore has had some up and ups and downs in the past, I'd say five to ten years of sports. We tried to bring the Grand Prix in, Grand Prix kind of mm, didn't work. There's a ton of issues with horse racing, which is you know that's as Baltimore as crabs, you know. Um, the football team, the Ravens are going through reconstruction. The Orioles, who knows what's going to happen with them. So uh, what do you see? Like, it seems like we had this big high. Like, 2012 was like this big high. Uh, the Ravens were the Super Bowl champions. The Orioles have finally gone back to the playoffs. We had the we had horse racing. It was a little bit of a resurgence in interest in Preakness. Um, and we had the Grand Prix and some other stuff going on. And now, seven years later, it's kind of like, feels like all of that stuff's being held on by a thread. What do you think is uh, uh, the current situation in Baltimore sports and what the future is going to be? Well, I mean, I don't know what the future is going to be, but I do worry about it. Uh, it looks like we're definitely going to lose the Preakness, which it goes, it's more a more historic sports event than the Super Bowl or the World Series. It goes back farther than, you know, much farther than the Super Bowl. It goes back farther than the World Series. It's uh, Pimlico is the racetrack here in Baltimore where that happens, and it and that goes back a long time before Yankee Stadium does. It's right. one of the most historic sports venues in the country, and it's crumbling to the ground. Mm. I think that Baltimore is a special case. You know, you hear about other cities like Detroit uh, that's had their economic problems and their racial problems, but I think in some weird ways, nothing matches Baltimore. Baltimore was the city that uh, that kind of pioneered. Um, uh, neighborhood segregation back in the early 20th century um, and it did it for not ideological reasons but for financial reasons mm -hmm. to try and preserve uh, real estate prices in certain neighborhoods so they separated black people and white people they separated Jewish people and Gentile people mm -hmm. just for that one reason and I think for years you know Baltimore uh, not for years Baltimore has never gotten over that Baltimore still is a segregated city in most ways where, you know, they call it Charm City and, and it had its ethnic <laughs> neighborhoods. But the dark side of it was was that it wasn't always just, you know, ethnicities living near each other. You know, the white people and the black people were separated by, by covenants and laws for, yeah. for a time. And Jewish people and Gentile people were separated. And to this day, the city still breaks along ethnic lines like that. Well, it's even coming out of the city because the, uh, for those of us who live in Baltimore, it's kind of this funny joke. Like, if you, the road's coming out of the city. If you go up Route 40, it's one ethnicity. I think the, I, I, I'm not going to even dare to categorize people because I hate doing it. But if you go up, uh, like, Reisterstown Road out here, that was mostly, you know, Jewish, and then it, uh, you know, Russian uh, up, down, up and down the line, and then Liberty Road was mostly blacks going out that way, and you had Polish going the other way. And uh, it, it was funny now because those lines are kind of crossing over a little bit. You have people kind of finally starting to move around. Well, but it's still there. You still can... Yeah. Don't well, you remember the old tasteless joke about Reisterstown Road that it was... It was uh, the longest road in the world because it went all the way from Israel to Africa. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, and it was, 
you know, I mean, black people and Jewish people always kind of lived near one another in Baltimore. And so, but, you know, Reisterstown Road, it went out into the suburbs where the white Jewish people lived. And, right. and it went all the way into the center of the city where, where the African-American populations were. Right. And that's how, and that's how a lot of the city's broken up. So, I don't know. So, can we, I don't know if the, I don't know if our sports teams well or lack of sports teams i don't know i guess we talk about the orioles but you're talking about how we used to all unify so we could all come down those right. roads and unify in the city and go to see the orioles or go to see the colts or, or, or later the ravens i mean even some people watch the blast um you, you know. well i think there are racial components to the problems of all those teams yeah. i think in the case of pimlico it borders on uh, an African-American community that used to be a Jewish community back in, you know, the earlier parts of the 20th century. Now it's a very uh, underprivileged African-American community with open-air drug markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of what's going on there, a lot of the reason why it's leaving is because a company that owns it doesn't plow any money into it. Right. And, they, you know, they don't want to. They don't believe that the neighborhood is worth investing in, apparently. Mm-hmm. In uh, the case of the Orioles... You know, their problems, all of baseball has its problems, but theirs seem to be unique. goes back to the Freddie Gray riots of a few Mm -hmm. years ago, and it seems as though the crowds have never come back since then, and people cite their fear of going into the city, you know, and then there's also things like the squeegee kids and things like that around here that add to that anxiety of whatever, you know, whatever it may be or however misplaced it might be or however real it might be. So I think that that the racial problem Problems of this particular troubled city really play into the fortunes of its athletic teams. Yeah, and it's it's funny you mention that because when the Freddie Gray thing had happened, that was right after the Orioles had uh, had a resurgence. They had just I think that was like a year or two after they had gone to right. the playoffs for the first time since what eighty whatever it was. Yes, yeah, since eighty three. Yeah, and and there was this resurgence of people going back down to the because I worked down there at the time. I uh, worked like two blocks from Camden Yards, so we would go right after work and just go to, just go to the Orioles game just to go. You know, um, I think now a lot of people that I know work down that who work down there they they won't go. They won't. They they're not going to walk down there at night. And right. Uh, we had a recent incident this past week with it. Uh, so I don't know. I hope. I mean, hopefully we're sounding like Debbie Downers right now, but hopefully something will spark. Because Baltimore, I, we're not a, Debbie Downers. Either one of us. We both are. It's are, realist. Right. <laughs> it's real. It's realist because, and we're not Downers. I mean, we're both native Baltimoreans, right? Yeah. You, you were born here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So was I, and we both love Baltimore. Right. And I don't think that we're downers, but we are looking at some very hard situations here. Every, I think every Baltimorean, black or white, knows it. Don't you think so? Yeah, I think but Baltimore is, is a big sports town. I mean, we're and I say sports town, almost all sports. We, you have Towson, you have lacrosse with the, the those, those colleges. Uh, people love the Terps. Even people in Baltimore love the Redskins. They love football. Um, we would love to have basketball here again. Well, it is, it is one of the best basketball cities in the world. Yeah. But we haven't had the NBA in, in nearly 50 years. Yeah, it's been forever since we've had the NBA. Um, you know, we're big. We were talking earlier uh, before we start recording about mixed martial arts. You know, uh, Shogun fights down at the arena. That does some business. Pro wrestling is, has been big in the city forever and a day. And we have an old history in boxing. Yeah, we have a history in boxing. Uh, Pikesville Armory, you know. Right. so. Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard, yeah. So we have a ton of sports history in this town, and I think it's part of, I think it's one of the things that kind of is, you talk about Detroit, kept 
us from kind of declining, well, that, and we're close to D.C., but kept us from declining into a Detroit kind of situation. We do get a lot of the money pumped in because we have a lot of government workers mm-hmm. from D.C., but we also have a, a sports town, and we do have these little pockets of, you know, affluent areas and then not so affluent areas, and it, as a community, it balances out to some extent. Um, it's at least kept us. I think the sports is what kept us kind of connected. I don't think people realize either because, because especially in recent years, we get such terrible press. I don't think that people realize what a truly great city Baltimore is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, from the really like the Gilded Age era in the late 1800s. It, it was a, a leader in railroading, and it had such a very vibrant seaport. I think it was the second most vibrant port in the country after New York for for most of the 20th century. And, um, you know, it had a lot of money. It has beautiful architecture in it, beautiful public art, you know, statues and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And, uh, and it, it's really, uh, you know, at one time it was a showplace city, and it is a gorgeous city. And to this day, most of the Baltimoreans never leave it. And the ones that do never stop talking about right. it, you know, like guys like Barry Levinson, they can't get it out of their heads. They right. keep doing their works of art are about Baltimore. So it is a really great town. And unfortunately, I think most of the rest of the country doesn't realize it anymore. No, they see it as a, as the wire. Uh, so let's talk about uh, as far as you being an author now and coming up with this book. Uh, so now that you guys know that there's so much more to the book, it's not a stats book. It is a book about history and it is a book about football. It's a book about a lot of things. Uh, so wh- how did you come up with the idea to even write this book? Well, Johnny Unitas was my hero as a kid. And uh, well, my one and only real hero was my father. But right. if I had another one, it was Johnny Unitas, and and I admired him on so many levels because he was such a long shot story, and uh, he was a guy who I mean I think all of us feel like him once in a while. He got no respect. He right. came out of college. He wasn't heavily recruited in college. He came out of college. He was cut by his original team. He was a late round draft pick, and then he. He, one man saw something in him and he ended up becoming the best player in history. Mm-hmm. If you had to choose one guy in all football history, you know, Johnny Unitas would be the Babe Ruth. So that was my original feelings about it. You know, later on I heard an old newspaper man, I was probably like 15 or 16, and uh, a guy named John Stedman, very famous here in Baltimore. And he, I was uh, at a newspaper conference for students and I heard him talking about how Unitas and Shula didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. So I just decided one day I'm going to write that book and it took me 35, 40 years but I wrote that book one day and that was how it got started. Oh, pretty cool. So how did you, uh, so once you wrote the book and you were looking to get it out there, uh, were you doing query letters? This is for a lot of people who are interested in writing. Well, if you're interested in writing a book, what I would tell you, for me personally and, and the way that I do as a nonfiction writer, I think it's very important to get a, a, a real publisher. And I think, you know, a lot of people like to self-publish today, but for my own feeling is is that you won't get the respect required. You won't get the... Uh, the publicity required uh, to make a go of it, and I wanted those things, I, you know, especially the respect. I I felt like there was a, a great writer inside of me, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted the world to judge me and decide if if I was a good writer or not. So, you know, th- the first step in that is finding yourself an agent. 
and that's what I did. It's much people don't understand this, but it's much harder to find an agent than a publisher, right. because an agent is uh, the person who really vets the writers for the publishers. So the agent has got is stuck having to wade through the work that's sent to them and choosing somebody. So they're going to be very selective, and they're very hard. Most most agents that I sent out to didn't even acknowledge that I sent them something. They didn't call me back. They didn't email me back. So, but I eventually found a good agent, and then she found me a, a good publisher. Cool. And uh, so, uh, since you've had the book out, and you've been doing speaking tours and mm-hmm. speaking engagements and everything else, um, so it, so far you're pretty happy with with the reception from the readers. Uh, yeah, book? I mean, I got great reviews from regular readers on Amazon and NetGalley, Goodreads. Um, you know, and I got some clinkers too. I mean, there were people that didn't like do. the book. What's that? You always will. Yeah, and it, do- it doesn't bother me. I mean, I guess it would bother me if all my reviews were poor, but the vast majority of my reviews were really, really good. And and uh, you know, and I don't begrudge people and their different tastes or whatever. If, if my book doesn't appeal to some people, I I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of my reviews were good, and my professional reviews were very good. I had a lot of interest from reviewers in England, believe it or not. I had uh, a lot of interest from top shelf uh, media personalities here in the United States, like Amy Lawrence uh, does an all-night show out of New York mm-hmm. that's national. Um, Peter King, who's a, the leading football writer in the country for the last 30 years. And um, Chris uh, Russo, who's on uh, XM Satellite Radio. I've, I've been on all their shows. And, and those people all showed a big interest in my work. So it really helped me kind of achieve the status I was, I was hoping to achieve. Um, you know, and in a lot of ways, it, uh, it made me like a little mini celebrity in, right. in a certain circles. I went to a wedding this weekend. I had, you know, several men come up to me and wanted to meet me and talk to me. And, and, um, and that happens to me almost everywhere I go now. So that's, you know, I mean, uh, that's fun. You know, it's, I mean, what artists, we all want an audience. We all want people to like what we do. And, mm. and uh, you know, and I think in those respects, I, I achieved that and made me really happy. Yeah, that's kind of funny because uh, a lot of our writers will be listening to this because we're we're almost because po- we're like polar opposites with the way we got into it. Because I am completely uh, self-publishing; I do not want anybody to recognize and know who I am, and I could care less about who, you know, notoriety or anything else. I I want you know, you enjoy the book, readers enjoy the book. How many people got it? That's that's my uh, much more of a to write to people, but it's also the difference between nonfiction and fiction. I think a lot of us have said um, self-publishing works a lot more for uh, genre fiction. But if you're doing nonfiction, like something like a sports book, or you're doing a, a news book, or if you're doing something in politics or anything like that, you kind of do need to have other people who are already in that field, who are known in that field, to kind of give the rubber stamp to it, and it works out better doing it that way. Um, do you think that because uh, I know for us the self publishers we just like turn out books every you know we can write a book every four months and then you know quick turnaround about a month two months to get it out there for you you're planning and you are planning to write more books yeah uh, for, I am so how is how does that process work with uh, the next book that you're going to write well let me go back for one second and then I'll, yeah. I'll explain that but you're talking about you know being polar opposites and one of us wanting. Uh, uh, validation maybe if that's the word and and the other one not 
I guess part of what clouded my feelings about that is, as you know, I was an advertising copywriter for right. many, many years, and in fact, for you know several decades. And when you're an advertising copywriter, you you write. I mean, it's this an inescapable fact? You're writing junk. You know, you're writing things that people don't want to read. Anybody who has had anything previously written for Jack, who's listening to this, he did not write you crap. It was quality work. Well, no, I'm not saying that it was crap. But what I'm saying though is, is that it's viewed that way. You know, especially in the old days. You know, when it was junk mail, or you know, it's the ads that you're, you know, throwing away, throwing away, right? Lighting the bird bird bin window, (laughs) right? So you know, I mean, as a writer, in a sense, it's kind of depressing you know you work so hard on these pieces right. and you want them to be great and you parsed every tiny little word and you work closely with the designers to make you know some great piece that would grab attention and you know but the reality of it was is that it was a diversion from whatever else you were doing right you, you know to me the idea of writing a book was writing something that people if I was successful at it if I was as good at it as I had hoped to be that people would really love it, you know, and it would be something that they would cherish. Right. So that's that's what I was kind of after. Now you're asking about a second book, and yeah. what, what what was your specific question about that? So uh, like how because like I said, we the the self publishers we kind of just go through and we just we already have it kind of planned out. We got like ten books planned out, like, yeah, because we write the series. Again, fiction, self publishing, genre fiction. It's if you're not writing a series, you're probably not going to do well. We kind of plan out ten books ahead of time and just go through them. Nonfiction, traditional publishing is a little bit more different because the timeline's a bit longer because you have more people involved with it. Um, and I don't. The last time I, my last publisher, we had three books in a contract. I never finished a third one because we just parted ways. So how is it working today? And that was like ten years ago. So how does it work today with you coming up with a second book? Uh, have you already pitched that idea to them? Yeah, Did they I already have. know? Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I had several publishers interested in the second book. And believe it or not, I see myself as writing a series, too, because I see common threads in all the ideas that I have. But my first book was about the 1960s, and my second book is taking place in in the 1970s. And it's interesting to see where the country goes in those 10 years. You know, it's very, very different things start to happen. I mean, one of the positive things of the Vietnam War, if you could say there was anything positive about it, was that there was a sense of duty and selflessness at that time, right. which when that left, what filled the void? You know, in the 1970s, what we found filled the void were decadence and, and uh, yeah, <laughs> drug use, <laughs> right. I mean, people, you know, it became a, 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 from a dut- dutiful society to a recreational society. And, it, you know, the, the, uh, the equation changed dramatically in those in those 10 years and not only can you see it in in things like going to war versus going and doing what you want to do or mm-hmm. you know but you see it in in uh, it pops up very much in the themes of the music and the movies and yeah. the books that people were reading from the one decade to the next it was a dramatic difference that might be i mean that's an interesting take on it if you're covering uh society and sports and going through the decades and seeing how not only his sport how sports change but how society changes and how they kind of affect each other because there isn't obviously there's a, 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 correl- a correlation, but there is an effect that sports has on the general public and how the general public affects. Because athletes are coming from the general, from the general public. public. So well, it's so see. interesting what you're saying because in the first book, this is what I saw in 1960. The the uh, stands were almost all white. The fans were almost all 
uh, men. Right. They were almost all wearing neckties and, and uh, sports jackets to the games and right. fedoras. And then by the end of the 60s, you know, the, the fans were black and white. They were male and female. They weren't wearing um, jackets and ties anymore. They were wearing garb that looked like what the players on the field were wearing. Right. They were wearing blue and white in Baltimore. They were wearing jackets that said Colts and shirts that said Colts and hats that said Colts. So it was, a, it was a dramatic difference. The players were very much like the fans in the early 60s. But by the you know, they were subject to the winds of, of the country, the, the cultural and social winds of the country. But by the end of the 60s, they were setting the social agenda of the country. Right. It changed dr- dramatically. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, the, the players became from, you know, almost background people in the beginning of the decade to the people who were pushing the agenda. One of the things that showed it very well, I thought, was by in the 1968 elections, uh, two football coaches were considered at the top of the presidential hmm. tickets in America. Nice. The Republicans under Richard Nixon wanted to consider choosing Vince Lombardi to be his running mate. Right. Then they found out that he was a Kennedy Democrat. Yeah. And the Democrats put in um, selection votes at their convention in 1968 for Bear Bryant as, oh, really? as both hmm. president and vice president. <laughs> so And he, of course, was the head coach of right. Alabama. Right. I so know. I thought that was interesting. I know that. It showed how their status had changed yeah. so dramatically. Yeah, and you go from uh, the guy who, you know, football season, I play football, and then in the off season, I'm shuffling meat, and then you're a celebrity right. and a social leader uh, by the end of the decade. So, yeah, that's a good take. To, uh, that's an interesting take to uh, take on that. I don't think I know of anybody who's done it that way. So, Well, I also thought it was interesting that Shula himself – I think was in his era, in the 60s, in his era with Baltimore, is that he kind of took on the sheen of like a John F. Kennedy of football right. because he was only 33 when he was chosen for the job. He was the youngest coach in history, just like Kennedy was the youngest president or one of the youngest elected presidents. And uh, they were both young, good-looking guys, mm-hmm. you know, ethnic. Shula was uh, Hungarian and Kennedy, of famously uh, Irish Catholic. Yep. So. He, he kind of, you know, it, it's weird how certain people fit their times so well. And, and Shula, you know, seemed to be almost like a Kennedy of football. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I wonder where that's going to go if we're ever going to get back to that. I don't, I don't, I don't know if sports is going to have, I mean, right now it doesn't have that same kind of political. Oh, I think it does. Well, not don't, to, don't not you for, think that maybe Kaepernick represents the kind of dystopian times we're living in? Yeah, but I don't think anybody's going to be voting for him for or no. writing him. For, that's what I'm talking about. But, it's like that oh, kind I see of, what you're saying. Kind of like you know, presidential candidate. Like because now we, well, we are in an era of uh, of celebrities being <laughs> right <laughs> president being, presidents and presidential candidates. Cause, right, you know. Well, I mean, I, I think they could come back like that, but I think that... The Rock it, doesn't count, does he? Does the, the Rock, rock? Does the rock count? Well, he played football. He did play football. He played football. college football, so, yeah. Well, I think that the big difference is, is you know, what we were seeing in the 60s. Remember, like I said, that the, that the league had reached its apex. Right. I think people took it very seriously. And I think that football was looked upon as a way, as a good substitute for war at that time. Right. The war had been discredited. Everybody was so angry about the Vietnam War. But football was a way of showing that we were still tough, you know. Mm. We were still manly, if you want to use that word. And that we, we hadn't gone soft, but we just didn't, you know, we didn't want to kill anybody anymore. We yeah. just wanted to knock their brains out. Well, that might be part of the, see, that might be part of the issue, too, is because, you know, the way society is now, you, you, like you said, can you say manly? Right. <laughs> Are you allowed? I mean, you can 
Jordan Peterson would say we can say manly, but some other people might not like that. And then what is manly? And da, da, da. I mean, that's a whole other podcast right. for a different time. Right. But, you know, that's part of I think we'll close on this, too, is uh, the part of the league. Oh, where do you think the league's going to go? Because, of, you know, concussion protocol was important. And it was important to deal with that. But some of the, do you think some of, the, the, some of those social leanings of not being so machismo and football being barbarian and aggressive because I've seen some people like I think even Joe Rogan said like I mean he's a big UFC mixed martial arts guy he said like probably 50 years mixed martial arts might not be a thing anymore because people just might not want to do it same thing with football uh, because of the injuries I mean I never took to mixed martial arts it never appealed to me but or even to say boxing because of the you know just combat sports when yeah, you have I, that kind I, of I mean I think football and boxing might be heading in the same direction I mean boxing's almost extinct now mm-hmm. and I think um I think football is going to have a hard time getting over this concussion problem. Mm-hmm. I think if they f- figure out a way to prove that uh, people have it before they die, you know, now they can only tell until they die and then they do autopsies on their brains. Right. I think if, if they figure out ways to be able to look in and see the damage as it's happening, that could, uh, you know, be an existential threat to football. I think that there's no, in my own opinion, I hate to say this because nobody loves professional football more than I do. I played football growing up, organized football, but I think that there's probably no way to make football safe. I don't think there is a safe helmet, for instance. I just think that the mere action of it, it jolts the head, Mm -hmm. you know, and and your brain is sloshing around in there and it's going to get damaged. Yeah, that's just, uh, you know, maybe we'll just have flag football. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so. But it would never be the same. I mean, look, part and I made this point in the book and I made it in my speaking tours, Part of the allure of football is the brutality. It is the violence, and it is that sense of danger. I mean, Johnny Unitas was who he was because he was the guy who would come off the ground. He once uh, got hit so hard he had blood flying out of his nose, mm-hmm. and he carterized it by scooping up mud off the turf, right. shoving it in his, both his nostrils, stopping the flow of blood, and then with about five seconds left on the clock, throwing a bomb to Lenny Moore to win, win the game. Right. You know, I mean, that idea of that lone great man who can mm. you know keep his head in the face of danger you know that's the allure of football yeah as, which is a life lesson too because there's, right. there's great life that's the biggest thing about sports is that there are life lessons in sports and i think people sometimes forget that there are lessons to be learned in it from the brutality and the guys know what they're getting into it's not like they don't i mean the stakes are the drama you know yeah. and that's what makes it so so fantastic yeah. But it's also, I mean, there could be some things that are just indefensible going on there. <laughs> well, that is that is true too. Um, so tell tell the people where they can find you online. Okay. Uh, you know, websites, Facebook, Twitter, okay. all that stuff. Well, the book itself is published by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, it can be found at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a- anywhere. Um, on you can find me in my social media. Uh, I have a website, jackgilden.com. Uh, that's J-A-C-K-G-I-L-D-E-N. And uh, you can reach out to me on Facebook just through my regular Facebook page. And uh, you can also get me on Twitter, and that's at Jack Gilden. Cool. Okay. All right, man. Nice to talk to you it's again. It's great to see you, Casey. Good to see you again. See you, buddy. Take it easy.